People coming for our horses, sweetie. Lucy, grab Jacob. Remember our plan. Sweetie, get away from the door! Grab Jacob's bear. I'll meet you at the top of the ridge. Wesley, come with us. If I don't, they're gonna take it all or burn it down. Let them. Please come. Daddy, run for please the door, run. girls. Run for the door. Please run. come. Run. Go. Run, girls. Run! Let's go, girls. Go! Go! Run! Girls. run. run. Welcome, welcome guys, welcome back Welcome back to the APE Academy Podcast, Act Protect Engage This scene is the opening scene from the excellent movie starring Kristen Bale, Hostiles, okay It takes place in the area that we're going to be discussing in the next few podcasts, alright Um this scene shows a frontier family, right? A frontier family. And they're trying to establish a new life out in the middle of Comanche country. Right out on the edge. I shouldn't say the middle. Right on the edge of white civilization, okay? The known world. Beyond them is the unknown. This was the plight of many settlers in this area. In this area and in this era. We're talking... Early, mid, and late 19th century. So we're talking the 1800s. All right. So this in this period, the uh, settlers were moving west. Okay. West of the Mississippi. Now, everything up to the Mississippi had pretty much been surveyed. Right. Uh, the Indians in those areas, the natives, have been subdued. Right. If they haven't been subdued, then they've been... Um, kind of tied to the whites with treaties, with land grants, in alliances, right? So the, this area is in what they called Indian country, all right? The wild frontier. So this family is on their own. It's the father, the mother, and his three kids, okay? So then they're out there with no protection. You know, it takes a lot of cojones to raise a family in such a dangerous unforgiving unpredictable environment and one thing I can say about the American spirit right the American will is strong I mean these settlers had nerves of steel they weren't afraid of anything they knew the risks like when that family was out there they knew if you hear if you listen closely closely you will hear the wife saying Sweetie, there's people coming for our horses. They know exactly what the Comanches are going to do. That was a Comanche war party. The Comanches were there to steal horses, to loot and plunder. They would always kill the males in the most brutal ways they they, they could think of. The males, you're dead. If you're a man and they catch you, you're gone. 
Most of the kids were killed as well. Usually kids between the ages of 8 and like teenage, like maybe 13, 14. They might spare you. They might not. They'll take you captive. Um, as a slave, maybe they'll sell you. Maybe they'll barter, they're, uh, will, you know, barter for you. Okay? If you're a baby, you're pretty much good as dead. Um, an infant. And if you're a woman, you're pretty much good as dead. And they're going to do all type of brutal things that I won't speak of um, to you before they kill you. So uh, this is just the life of a frontier family. This is this is the danger involved in it. And today we're going to talk about the crucial technology, the, the piece of technology that shaped this entire era, that changed the course of American history and kind of redefined the West, redefined the frontier. And it also redefined a particular tribe all right it thrust them from from just a meaningless kind of existence where no one thought about them no one cared about them and it shot them straight into dominance right from a nobody to somebody in this podcast we will explore the power and might of the Comanche Empire. What a epic podcast series this will be. Thank you for joining me. I'm your host, Chase H. Sit back, relax, and enjoy. Masters of the Horse, how horse technology propelled the Comanches to dominance. God bless you, ape. favorite part where the drums come in this song is called the war dance and it's from the Comanche tribal chant album okay I've listened to a uh, disturbing amount of Native American music leading up to these podcasts my wife kind of looking at me sideways like what are you doing <laughs> I was trying to get into the mode right I want to do the podcast um and be as authentic as I can and kind of get into the head of the settlers of that era, of the natives, of the indigenous people and tribes that lived in those areas. I feel like it's really, really important as a historian to kind of um, put yourself there. You know, it's really, really crucial. So I'm not going to blabber on too much and rant, but you know what it is. Today we're talking about the Comanche. In particular, we're talking about how horse technology, so the horse, right? Everyone knows what a horse is, I hope, <laughs> listening to this podcast. How the horse, particularly a particular breed of horse, shaped the frontier. How it changed everything beyond the Mississippi River 
and I'm not saying this, you know, to be dramatic. I'm not overstating it. I am dead serious. Horses were maybe the most revolutionary technology, right, that ever hit the North American continent. And I'm not playing. More so than cars. Cars came obviously much later than the era we're talking about, but the horse really, really changed the power dynamics. Okay? So that's important to remember. I hope you guys enjoy the uh, music in the back. We're playing some uh, Comanche music. Okay? Please remember to like, review, and subscribe to the Ape Academy podcast. We really want to become a top educational podcast. We want to try to break into the top 100. And I know it's a long time. It's going to take me a little while to get there. But we're hoping that you know every review you guys make counts. Every, every subscription, every download, every listen. We really, really appreciate you guys. Thank you for taking time out of your busy days to listen to my monotone voice drone on and on and on about nerdy subjects. Nerds unite. <laughs> I love this stuff, man. Um, and I'm hoping that I can really kind of turn this into a major freaking deal in the podcast world and in the history field. So that's my goal. All right. So we're back to what the subject at hand, what we're going to talk about today. And that's the Comanche in particular, the horse. All right. And you might say, you know, Chase, I don't get it. I mean, I thought all Plains tribes, all Plains Indians, they had horses, right? I mean, they always see in the movies, always see in popular culture, uh, toys, you know, stories, Hollywood, TV shows, always see our Indians on horses doing their war chants with paint on their face with headdresses running around shooting arrows and tomahawking people and killing buffalo. Part of that is true. <laughs> they did kill a lot of buffalo and they definitely rode horses, but that came much later. And it was not a skill that every tribe was particularly good at. You know what I mean? It's like everyone, like, this is going to be a really stupid comparison. So (laughs) stick with me. It's like the NBA, right? You got your team. You got your NBA team. They're all amazing ball players, right? They're all great players. But some people like LeBron, like KD, like Curry are just transcendent players, right? And some guys are, are solid. You know, they're good role players. They, they, might, they might give you 15, 15 and 5 with two steals. You know what I'm saying? Like the entire Sixers team, just mediocre. But the Comanche were like this. They were like the Steph Curry of Plains Tribes. Okay. They were, they were like the Jordan of Plains Tribes when it comes to the horse. Okay. Just, just keep that in mind. Just think about Comanches as that. The Jordan of the Great Plains, <laughs> okay? The Jordan, like, they were it when it came to horses. Like, there were no finer horsemen, horsemen, um, you know, as far as horsemanship, fighting from horses, breeding horses, breaking horses, taking care of them. No people came even close, guys. Okay. All right. I'm still playing with the volume of this background music. If you guys uh, find it a little bit too loud, hit me up in the DMs, man. I'm on Instagram 
You guys know what it is. Ape Academy, APE Academy on Instagram. We're on Facebook, Ape Defensive Solutions. We're on Twitter, uh, at, what is it, underscore? At A underscore defensive. That's it. We don't really use Twitter too much, so do not get bad at me if you don't see a tweet for like six months. Also, this podcast is sponsored by the USCCA and Bravo Concealment Holsters, USCCA, United States Concealed Carry Association, the number one concealed carry Second Amendment organization in the United States. Join them today. Also, Bravo Concealment. Go to bravoconcealment.com or on Instagram at bravoconcealment. Use code APE10 to get 10% off at checkout. Okay, they offer the best inside the waistband holsters, outside the waistband holsters. Okay, they got tactical mag pouches. They got tactical belts. I have a bunch of their holsters and a few of their mag pouches. So please use our code and get 10% off. It'll come in handy during the holiday season. Okay. Also, another quick housekeeping note. The APE store, Great Ape Fashion, is launching around the Christmas season. Tune in. Okay, keep your eyes peeled, man. We're coming. Is it eyes peeled or, or ears? Yeah, I don't know. Whatever. All right, guys. Okay, where are we going to start off? Okay, so, oh, oh, wait. Let me go back. This is going to be a long podcast, or it's going to be over an hour. I want to make sure I get everything in I can. This, this subject is so freaking awesome. I love it. So I want to make sure I get everything in. I want to make sure I do my due diligence in my research. Okay, so let's go over some sources. So... My number one source for this podcast was S.C. Gwen, Empire of the Summer Moon. Man, I'm telling you what. If you want to read an awesome book about the frontier, about Native Americans, about the early settlers, about Texas and New Mexico during the uh, 1800s and the 1700s, read that book, okay? Uh, also, we have a book called The Comanche Empire, okay? Check it out. It's on Amazon. Is by Pika Hamelin. Okay, check them out. Also, we reference the Encyclopedia Britannica as well. Okay, so those are my three main sources for this particular podcast episode. All right, so let's go over it again. Today's episode is entitled Masters of the Horse. How horse technology propelled the Comanches to dominance. All right, here we go. Let's launch. Um, so what are we talking about? We're talking about the Great Plains, okay? The Great Plains. What are the Great Plains, Chase? Well, when you're when we're talking the Comanches, we're talking anywhere west of San Antonio, in the Texas territories, okay? We're also talking about the Oklahoma pan uh the Oklahoma area above the Texas Panhandle. Right, we're talking about New Mexico, Santa Fe, okay, Santa Fe, outside of San Antonio. We also have parts of Oklahoma, and also the Comanche Empire almost kind of curved into Mexico. All right, and we'll go over that later, okay? So keep that in mind when we're thinking about it. However, the Great Plains was pretty much anywhere west of the Mississippi, okay. When, we, when you say Great Plains, what we mean is the vast, endless 
flat grasslands west of the Mississippi, but before you get to the Rockies. Like the Rockies is kind of like the western boundary, okay? So Kansas, Nebraska, Oklahoma, Texas, New Mexico. All right, just vast, endless grasslands for as far as I can see for miles. That's the area we're talking about, okay? So go there. So transport from your room, from your car, from your shower, wherever you're listening to this podcast, from your bed, and come with me to the Great Plains. This is where we're going to be during this podcast, okay? That's why I love playing the native music and kind of setting everything up with a nice intro, right? I want us to be there with them. I want us to experience the history. History lives, man. It's, it's living and it's breathing, okay? I think people think history is boring, kind of dry, because some people make it that way, right? It's just a bunch of facts on a piece of paper. When we remember that these people were real, living, and breathing with vibrancy, color, hear the howling wind, hear the hear the thunder and lightning, listen to the horses. I mean, you can hear the drums in the back. I mean, that's the setting I wanna I wanna I wanna have for us, okay guys? So uh <laughs> my god. Man, I should I should really write some poetry, huh? What do you think? You think I'll be a good poet? Yeah, probably not. Probably suck. Anyway, okay, we're talking about the Great Plains Indians. Okay. So, according to the uh, the Encyclopedia Britannica, a Plains Indian is, quote, a member of any of the Native American peoples inhabiting the Great Plains of the United States or Canada. Pretty simple definition. So, what are the Great Plains? The Great Plains is an area in, that encompassed a vast, endless grassland between the Mississippi River and the Rocky Mountains, just like I said earlier, from the present-day province of Alberta, Canada, and Saskatchewan, Saskatchewan, through present-day Texas. So, from Alberta, Canada, to Texas. Think about it. That's a freaking huge area. It's you. Can, our tiny brains can't even wrap themselves around how big that is. Okay. Pause. All right. The area is drained by the Missouri and Mississippi rivers. The valleys are the most reliable sites to get fresh water, wood, and most plant foods. Okay. Also, the, the valleys were uh, places that the natives used to shelter in because of the howling winds and the kind of the rough weather, right? Because there's no shelter. There are no trees. Like, it's a literally a sea of grass and rock. There might be some mountains, some hills. But there's really no protection from like the, the massive blizzards, the, the uh, sandstorms, okay, the rain. So the tribes would kind of congregate in valleys along rivers, okay, because that's where they got their food. That's where the most food was. Man, the climate was horrible, <laughs> unpredictable, extremely hot to extremely cold, okay? It's awful. The last tribes. To be defeated or conquered in North America were the Plains Indians. So the Plains Indians were literally the last tribes to bow to the U.S. government. So what, what happened was the settlers came to the east, right, with the pilgrims. In the beginning, they had, they had treaties. They kind of used the Indians to fight against their enemies, like in the French and Indian War, the, uh, the uh, War of 1812, the American Revolution. Indians were involved. Natives were involved. The East Coast tribes, 
you know, east, I call them East Coast, but really east of the Mississippi, right? They were, they were kind of subjected, not, I want to say easily because they weren't, but it was a lot different, okay? Because a lot of them were already, already allied with the whites against their enemies. They were not horsebound, so they were always fighting on foot. Um, they just didn't have the technology and disease really ravaged them. So what happened was, so uh, the settlers came, the Europeans came to the east, and then they literally skipped. Somehow, they managed to do that. They skipped over the middle of the country. So they land in the east, they go the long way through, like, they skipped the, the middle of the country because that was, like, unexplored. They go around into California first. They clear out the tribes of California, and then they decide to, to go into the frontier of the uh, Great Plains. So it was kind of backward, right? They start off in Massachusetts. They go down the East Coast. They conquer the tribes all around that area or ally with them. They conquer the Seminoles in Florida. Then they part, start pushing west to the Missouri. Then they're like, hmm, I don't like this. They go around the California because once they heard that there was gold and other settlements, they scoop around to California, mostly because all that was owned by Mexico. We're not going to go into that. That's another story, okay? All right, so... Some tribes continued resistance well into the 1880s, and that was the Comanche. They were the last tribe to bow to the white man. The Great Plains Indians are really kind of stereotypically represented in popular culture, and that's kind of what we think of when we think about the Indian, right? Like I said earlier, you know, the tall, handsome, noble savage on the horse with the war paint whooping and hollering and with a tomahawk, with a headdress, banging on drums, and living in teepees. That was, that's how we think of Indians, right? So that character, caricature, caricature, that kind of, <laughs> sorry, man, it's hard, man. It's hard to do a podcast and talk because I'm so excited. You know, that stereotype of the of the Indian is is close, but not that accurate of what the Plains Indian was like. And we'll go into that, okay? But that's not how all Indians were. That's just our Western perception, our, our ignorant perception of them, okay? All right. Views of the arch archetype of the American Indian was promoted by traveling shows, right? And exhibitions, such as George Catlin's Indian Gallery, the Wild West shows, such as the one directed by Buffalo Bill, toys, collectibles, films, TV shows, etc. Basically, they help promote the racist uh, stereotypes and ignorance toward the natives. Okay? This helped breed a lot of ignorance and a lot of racism. They just looked at Indians as subhuman, as noble, savages, as, as just animals, pretty much, that banged on war drums. And that's not true. Okay? Not true at all. It's the furthest from the truth. Now... Saying that, that does not mean that there were some tribes that were not primitive. And when I mean primitive, I don't, I don't say that in a derogatory or insulting way. What I mean is primitive in the sense that their culture was really basic and simple and stripped of all like unnecessary things, like all ornaments. Like if it was, their culture, if some of these tribes culture, like the Comanches, I'm talking about the Comanches right now. If the Comanches culture was a Christmas tree, it would be a plain Christmas tree with no ornaments and no lights. That would be Comanche culture. 
And that's not an insult. All they cared about was war. All they cared about was hunting and raiding. But we'll talk about that later, okay? All right, so let's talk about the Plains Indians' culture and, his, and their language. All right, so their linguistic organization. Okay, so there's six, six distinct American Indian language families or stocks, right, for all my linguists out there that are represented in the Plains. All right, so we got uh, six dialects, six languages, okay? A people that speak the same language, a people that speak the same language are generally referred to as a tribe or a nation, okay? So within a tribe, there were also completely autonomous bands led by individual war chiefs or even individual braves, okay? So within a tribe, and when we say tribe, what we mean is a group of individuals connected by a common language, okay? Not necessarily a common culture, not necessarily a common cause, right? But a common language, okay? So... Within each language, there's tribes, and within each tribe, there are bands. So there's different kind of breakdowns within each group, okay? And that's something, actually, I, didn't, I really didn't know before I did some research for this. Comanches were organized into bands. War parties were headed by a group of braves, almost like white, uh, Viking war parties in Europe. So remember how I talked about the Vikings? And how when they raided, I don't know if you guys ever listened to the Viking podcast, the Viking Berserker. Go ahead and check that out. It's a dope podcast as well. Viking war parties were also organized um, by individual warriors, right? A warrior can just be like, hey, guys, if he was, you know, had enough status in the community, if he was cool enough, if he was respected enough, right? <laughs> if, if the dudes thought he was dope, if they're, oh, he's a dope, he's a dope warrior. They'd be like, all right, we'll follow you. We'll go with you. If he was like, come on, let's go raid England, right? Real quick, it'll take like a week, maybe two, tops. And they're like, mm, all right, man, I got nothing to do. And then like 20, 30 guys join them. That's the same thing that the Native, that the Comanches particularly um, did. Uh, the Native Americans did in general, but the Comanches in particular would do, right? It would be, it didn't, you didn't need a leader, a big chief, like Chief uh, Buffalo Hump which we'll talk about later. We didn't you didn't need a chief like him. You just needed like hey, like Chase, like yo, Chase is organizing a war party. We need 15 guys, man. Like, you know what I mean? Makes sense? I don't want to explain things for too freaking long. <laughs> I do that a lot. Okay, for example, within the Comanche Nation, historians agree that there were five distinct bands at the turn of the 18th century. Each contained over 1,000 people. Some had as many as 5,000 people, which is a lot of freaking people if you think about it for a uh, hunter-gatherer group, okay? So first we had the Yamparika, known as the Yap Eaters, okay? They were the northernmost band of Comanches. They inhabited the lands to the south of the Arkansas River. The Kotsotekeka, Kotsotekeka, Buffalo Eaters. Their main grounds were the Canadian River Valley in present-day Oklahoma 
and the Texas Panhandle. The Panateca. The Panateca, they are the ones that came into contact the most with the whites, okay? A lot of the other bands were kind of out there on their own, and they stayed far away from white folks. They're like, we don't want no part of them. They are weird. They, no offense, guys. They are smelly, and they have these invisible killers that kill all of us. We drop dead, and we don't know why. So we're going to stay away from them, okay? But the uh, Panateca, the honey eaters, they were called, they had close contact with white settlers, and it really, I mean, it pretty much annihilated them eventually. They suffered a lot. Um, and the last, um, the last chief, the last chief of the Comanche, Kawana Parker, his mom, his mama was initially a member of the Paniteka. Okay. They are the largest and southernmost band of Comanches. They have a massive territory that stretched deep into Texas. Okay. So they're all over Texas. Pretty much start at San Antonio. San Antonio was really the only occupied city in Texas by whites, okay? Everything else was Indian country. Right? Then you had the uh Noconi, right? The Wanderers, they were the middle Comanches. They occupied the lands in North Texas, present-day Oklahoma between the uh Paniteca and the northern bands of Comanche, okay? So they're kind of Squished in the middle there. They were squished between people. And then you had the most famous, the Quahadis, the Antelopes, Quahana Parker's band, the last great chief of the Comanche, a legend. Okay, a freaking legend. Um, his band occupied the Colorado, Brazos, and Red Rivers in far northwest Texas. Okay. Each language or uh, each language group or family group included groups that lived in other cultural areas, okay? What did that mean? That means speakers of certain languages aren't always located in the same geographical area. Okay, so you might speak a similar language with a tribe, but one tribe might live in Canada and the other tribe might live in Oklahoma. It's possible. For example, the speakers of the Algonquin languages including the Blackfoot, Plains Cree, and Altsina are all located in the northern plains, while the Cheyenne, who also speak Algonquin, were uh, located in the central plains. Okay? So Cheyenne is an Algonquin language. It was spoken in the central plains. But the Blackfoot, which are also now Algonquin uh, language, were located in the Northern Plains. So it's possible that languages could be separated by geographical distance, right? You didn't have to be on the same spot. Everyone who spoke, for instance, anyone, everyone who spoke Spanish does not live in Mexico. Make sense? The Comanche and the River Shoshane were both members of the Ulto Azekan language family, okay? So that's the Aztec language family. The Uto Aztecan. I screwed that up so bad. <laughs> so they were in their own language family. They shared a common language with the Aztecs. They didn't speak Nahuatl. They didn't speak Nahuatl, but they had, were in the same language family. Okay. 
And that's what I was talking about during the Aztec podcast. There's some historians that believe that the Aztecs actually came south from across the border, right? Although they're a Mexican people, their language can be traced north of the Mexican border. Because guess what? The Comanches speak the same, not the same language, but their language is from the same language family. Make sense? Long story short, okay, they were spread out. The languages were spread out. And just because Algonquin was spoken in the north doesn't mean it can't be spoken in the southern plains. Make sense? All right, all right, all right. All right, so horse technology. It's horse technology time. So uh, back then there wasn't a lot of horses, okay? Actually, there were no horses, it's not like it is today. Everyone did not have a freaking horse like everyone has a car now, right? If you had a horse, you were powerful. You were different. You set the tone. Just imagine. The, just, just, let's let's kind of think about it, right, for a second. It's kind of like now, right? So let's say only a certain amount of people had cars. Let's say 5% of the population had cars. And no one else had cars. Just imagine how popular that, or popular and how powerful that five percent would be, right? Same thing with horses. Only the Spanish had horses in the beginning, and they were setting all the rules. So the Spanish were um, the Europeans that inhabited the Southwest, right? We're talking Mexico. We're talking Texas, we're talking New Mexico, we're talking California, we're talking uh, Oklahoma. Okay, so they occupy that area. All right, but anyway, we're getting back on track. All right, so horse technology. Horse technology changed the course of American history. The introduction of horses into the Great Plains, it redefined American history, all right? What did horses do, right? Horses were important for a lot of reasons. One, they greatly increased human mobility and productivity to the extent that most modern historians will divide the history of the plains into a pre-horse and post-horse time period, okay? That's how important the horse was. Like, (laughs) you cannot... You cannot retell the history of the American West, the Great Plains, and the Plains Indians without talking a lot about the horse. And that's what this podcast is dedicated to, the horse. That's what we want to talk about, okay? Because it, the importance of the horse cannot be understated. All right? Horses became available in the late 1600s, right? So they became available because there was a big revolt. It was called the Pueblo Revolt of 1860, okay? And it was a grisly, blood-soaked rebellion. And that rebellion drove the Spanish out of New Mexico. And we're not going to go into all the details of of that rebellion because you can write a book about it. All right, but the Pueblo Indians were the first Indians that came in contact with the Spanish. And as you can probably guess, guess what the Spanish did to them? conquer them, kill them, or enslave them, right? And the Pueblo Indians got really sick and tired 
of the Spanish. So they rebelled and they forced the Spanish out of New Mexico. Okay. Abandoned by the Spanish, thousands of Mustangs ran wild into the open plains. And the open plains really resembled their ancestral homeland of Spain. So the Iberian Mustang, right? The Spanish brought it from Spain. As we know, Spain is located on the Iberian Peninsula in Europe. And that's what they're called, the Iberian or Spanish Mustang, okay? And the uh, flat, rocky, desert-like landscape of New Mexico was a lot like where they came from. So they adapted really quick. It did not take long for those Spanish Mustangs to adapt to their environment, all right? Spanish Mustangs were perfectly adapted to New Mexico. So they, they thrived and they multiplied quickly. The Spanish Mustang became the foundation stock for the magnificent Mustang herds of the Southwest. So have you guys ever been to the Southwest? I hope some of you guys have. If you've been to the Southwest and you kind of went to like a, hotel, a local hotel or motel and you picked up like a grocery about what's like what's in the area, you know, those little cheap like grocery that they have in the in the uh, freaking lobby of most hotels showing you different attractions in the area. Right. A lot of them, especially in New Mexico, I lived in El Paso for a while and El Paso is on the border of New Mexico. And if you go into New Mexico and you go to a hotel and certain, you know, and you go out there like, uh, in, you know, Santa Fe, Albuquerque, <laughs> you'll see like, you know, have pictures of these beautiful horses, like come out and do a desert tour. And you might see these beautiful horses and they'll have these pictures of these wild ho horse herds just galloping everywhere and going through rivers and looking beautiful with sh uh, shiny hair and coats. That's what they're, that's what we're talking about, right? The Iberian Mustang. The wild horse of the Southwest, right? And their ancestors first came here uh, in the, what, 1500s, something like that? Early 1600s, really, really late 15. We're talking around 1580. The Spanish brought them, okay? And that's where they came from. All right, so the dissemination of so many horses, and they were disseminated among 30, 30 Native American tribes of the region. And that completely blew up the power structure, blew up the power dynamics of that area. It just went freaking crazy. Just imagine all you did your entire life, all your ancestors ever did was walk around on foot and with dogs dragging your stuff. Like they had dogs carrying most of their stuff. And you would just kind of take as much as you could, you can carry and just walk from, from her from point to point right from from campground to campground from campsite to campsite chasing the bison herds on foot uh gathering uh berries roots plants killing small game because you can only kill small game because you're on foot right so it's just a crazy power swing and it, it it's all because of this tiny ugly little horse all right, so we're going to take a quick break. It's 40 minutes. I'm going to go drink a glass of water because my throat hurts. Pause. We'll be back in a flash. Eight.
Oh yeah, we're back, baby. Did you miss me? Did y'all miss me? I love native music. I have Lakota in my blood. And when I was young, we used to go to powwows. I never danced, though. I was a terrible dancer. Horrible. It was always so cool to see our culture on display and just kind of uh, appreciate it and celebrate it with each other. It was awesome. All right, all right, all right, guys. We're back on track now. Okay, so let's talk about Comanche life before the horse. Pre-horse. Pre-horse Comanche life, okay? I gave you guys a little bit of a preview before we took that quick break, but let's go over it again. Okay, from 10,000 CE to approximately... Uh, see, 1100 CE, so that's a long time. Plains, the plains were very sparsely populated by humans. There was like no one out there. I mean, you talk about vast and empty and lonely. That was the Great Plains, okay? For many, many years. Do the math 10,000 CE to 1100 CE. The humans that were on the plains were hunter-gatherers. The residents lived in small, family-based groups. Usually no more than a few dozen individuals made up each group. They forged widely over the landscape. So they, they went from place to place forging. Forging is like when you, you know, are digging for, 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 for vegetables, looking for berries, um, digging up roots, trying to find food with your hands, you know, sticks, primitive tools. Finding whatever you can that's edible in your landscape. And that must have been pretty hard to do. That life must have been really, really ugh, brutal. So, Comanches entered the Great Plains from the high country, which is modern-day Wyoming, above the Arkansas River. And um, in their language, they, the name for themselves just meant people. So, that's it. Right, they didn't really have a, a name for themselves, right? Their name for themselves was just meant it just meant the people. That's it. So they didn't even really have a distinct sense of like who they were. They didn't have a real distinct identity. Okay? From SC Gwen's book Empire of the Summer Moon, the Comanches were and I quote they were of the mountains, short, dark-skinned, and barrel-chested. They were the descendants of the primitive hunters who had crossed the land bridge from Asia to America in successive migrations between 11,000 and 5,000 BC. And in the millennia that followed, they had scarcely advanced at all. So just think about it. They made no advancement. So imagine like we were still riding around on horses. That doesn't even, and that's kind of, that's a really kind of bad example and a rough example, but I'm trying to like put it in context that we can think about like, okay, so just imagine like we were still living like the pilgrims right now in 2021. The natives were still living 
like their early ancestors thousands of years later they no, life had not changed at all they lived they died they lived they suffered they died that was their life cycle for thousands upon thousands of years okay They scrounged and they hunted for a living. They used stone weapons and tools. They speared rodents and small game like we talked about. We're talking rodents, squirrels, raccoons, whatever they could. All right? They hunted and killed buffalo. And they did that without horses back then because they remember they did everything on foot. They did that by setting the prairies on fire, which is crazy, super dangerous. And then stampeding the creatures over cliffs. Or into pits that they dug. So they would set it up. They had ancient methods where they would they would approach a herd on foot. They had no remember they had no horses. They would start lighting the grass, the prairie on fire. And what this did was it panicked the buffalo. And the buffalo would then just bolt, right? Stampede. And it would stampede right uh into a pre kind of built, predetermined either pit right where they fell to their deaths or they would stampede straight off a predetermined cliff that the, that the natives kind of directed them toward because they couldn't there was no way to hunt them mano y mano they're 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 tiny right tiny people versus these huge 800 pound buffalo that could feed a family for probably a month all right maybe more so what they had to do they had to force the buffalo to panic and kill themselves basically commit suicide they were scared by the fire then they would run straight off a cliff because they're buffalo. They don't have you know huge brains. They just want to get away from the heat. They have no idea what these little annoying creatures are that are chasing them. But they're more worried about getting burned alive by the fire than these little tiny insects that are whooping and hollering and stuff. Okay. All right. So what they what do they use? Right. What do they use for transportation? They use dogs to travel. Right. A dog travoy, right? What is a dog travoy? It's a frame that's slung between two poles, pulled by a dog. <laughs> In the kind, well, I want to say pulled by a dog, more like drug by a dog. Okay, so just imagine this: a big dog with poles strapped on his back, um, kind of making a little area where you can pile pile stuff on, and then that dog would drag it everywhere. A frame slung between two poles pulled by a dog and then they carried their teepees so there's really no good way to get around just imagine if you had to travel let's say you had to travel to your i'm just gonna do a short distance right i mean i live in houston i'm say i i live in katie i have to travel the buffalo herd is in is in sugarland sugarland is like an hour away driving but the buffalo herd has been located by our scouts in Sugarland. I had to pack everything I owned into the smallest suitcase or two suitcases I can I can fit them in, and then carry, then strap them to my pit bull named Sugar, and carry whatever else I could and walk for like it would probably take me a day or two to get to Sugarland from from uh, Katie to get to the buffalo herd. That was what their life was like. So the horse, when the horse came, it was like, okay, instead of walking to Sugarland, I'm gonna hop in my car and drive to Sugarland. 
Like the difference is like we can't even really fathom the difference in lifestyle that is. And a lot of great stuff came with it, right? Well, great stuff for the natives. Not so good for the uh, Europeans and settlers. All right. Um, there were 5,000 Comanches at the time, right? Back then, oh, thousands of years ago, and they lived in scattered bands. They had a simple culture. Even among the hunter-gatherer cultures, theirs was very stripped down, like I, like I explained before, kind of like a Christmas tree with no lights and no ornaments. Just a very stripped down, bare bones culture. They had no agriculture. They never cut down a tree, not even a single tree. <laughs> they never wove a single basket. They never made a single piece of pottery. They never built a single house. They had no houses, no art, no writing, no uh, permanent structures of any, of any kind, no written language, nothing, okay? They had little or no social organization whatsoever other than the hunting band, all right? The hunting or warrior band. That was their only social organization. And that was very loose, right? So you could go from band to band to band. You could hop to this band, hop to that band. That's a, man, it's pretty, I'm not gonna lie. It's a romantic lifestyle because it's so free. The culture had no war societies like the Aztecs, right? Remember how we talked about the Aztecs? With the Eagle Warrior and the Jaguar Warrior. No such thing in Comanche culture. They didn't have any of that. Everyone was a warrior. That's not how it worked. You had to be to survive. And there was no permanent priest class. There was no real religion. Like there wasn't there wasn't like a class of people who told other Comanches what to believe in, what to worship, what to pray to, what to give homage to. There was none of that. Um they were unlike any of the tribes from the American Southwest. I cannot speak. They were unlike the tribes from the American Southwest. These tribes, they built sophisticated cultures and the culture centered around uh, towns, large towns, maize agriculture, clans, priests, and powerful chiefs. So these American Southwest tribes mainly were talking about the Apache. All right. The Apache were semi-agricultural so they had to settle down they settled down they built these these big villages and they grew corn and crops and it, it kind of kept them stationary easy targets for comanches though um to the immediate east tribes like the pawnees the wichita's the missouri's the omaha's and the pawnees they all developed pottery basketry they spun and they wove fabric. They practiced extensive agriculture. They built houses of grass, bark, or earth. Comanches literally had none of these characteristics. They did nothing like that, which is why it makes it so crazy. It's why it's so crazy that the Comanches were so powerful. And it just goes to show you how one change can, one like uh, piece of technology, one change in technology, in the landscape, can really change a whole people's destiny, right? There, there were nothing. There were, there were scrubs. I'm not gonna be. I'm not gonna lie to you guys. The Comanche were pretty much scrubs. They were like the New York, what the New York Knicks used to be, up until like two years ago. <laughs> They're like the Eagles right now. The Philadelphia Eagles. They're pretty much scrubs. I mean, come on. Um. 
Shout shout out to the Eagles, man. Sorry, I love you guys, man. I'm just saying, y'all pissing me off, losing to the Giants. Bull crap. So not only did they not, um, not only did they not, you know, have a written language, have a culture, have a religion, have any art, any agriculture, or any houses, they also weren't very good fighters. <laughs> they stunk at fighting back then. Uh, because they had been driven from their original home in the mountains by other tribes. So the only reason why they were even in their area was because they had lost mad battles and were pretty much kicked the F out of their ancestral homeland. So they had to wander south into the grasslands. So you can imagine like, man, like if they were like on a scale of one to ten as far as like power, they were like a two. If they're on a scale of 1 to 10 as far as sophistication, they're on a 1. If they're on a scale of 1 to 10 as far as, you know, economic uh, strength, they're on, like, a 1. So they were pretty much just slums. Like, they were, like, no one wanted to be a Comanche. And I'm not, I'm not crapping on the Comanches because this story does not end with this. Like, this is just the post, this is the pre-horse. Post-horse? They're, like, the freaking... In New England Patriots with Tom Brady. They're like the New York Yankees with Derek Jeter. They're dynasty. Like, and I and I cannot overstate this enough. The dazzling just ascent of the Comanches were just, it, it's like unheard of in human history. How someone can go from pretty much a backwater hillbilly redneck to a freaking to Elon Musk overnight, <laughs> pretty much, you know, like a, like a money, power, respect, prestige, overnight. It's incredible. All right, so let's talk about post horse. The Spanish bring horses. Okay, quote from S. C. Gwen's book, The Summer Moon. What happened to the tribe between roughly 1625 and 1750 was one of the greatest social and military transformations in history. Few nations have ever progressed with such breathtaking speed from the status of skulking pariah to dominant power. They went from pariahs to power brokers in less than 100 years, which is as a historian that is impossible I mean it's it's literally like you can't go from you know like Drake said right started from the bottom now they, now you're here you can't start from the bottom like culturally <laughs> economically militarily and literally arrive in less than a hundred years that's like ridiculous that's like starting a music career like oh I have no mixtapes I have no music I have no manager I have two followers and in like two weeks, you have a million followers and like a record label. Like that's like impossible, but that's what the Comanches did. And it was all because of the horse, the cute, well, kind of ugly slash cute too. I don't know, kind of kind of cute Iberian Mustang, which we're about to talk about right now. So the Comanches ascent began with the arrival of the Spanish in Mexico in the early 15th century. No, that's the early 16th century, right? The Spanish arrived in the early 
16th century. That is a typo on my part, on my outline. Yes, so this, the uh, Spanish arrived in Mexico in the early 16th century. So we're talking around 1510. And they brought horses to the New World, which absolutely terrified the Aztecs, which gave the Spanish a huge advantage. Plus, their diseases also helped defeat the Aztecs. Plus, their alliance with the Aztecs, arch rivals. If you want to learn more about the Aztecs, go back to our podcast and check them out, man. It's great stuff. Okay, so the Spanish horses, they were perfectly suited to the arid and semi-arid plains in the mesas of Mexico and the American West. They were perfect, like we talked about before. The Iberian Mustang is a desert horse. Its ancestors lived in the dry steppes of Central Asia, and over time, the breed migrated from North Africa by way of the Middle East. And along the way, they mixed blood with other hybrids. So as they're traveling, as they're as they're traveling around um, from Asia to the Middle East, they're mixing along the way. Man, they're mixing, they're matching, they're 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 becoming better. They're they're becoming even a stronger breed. They, they they're developing a strong bloodline. The Moorish invasion of the Iberian Peninsula it brought the I- Iberian Mustang to Spain. All right, so the Moors invaded the Iberian Peninsula and conquered a lot of Portugal, modern-day Portugal. In modern day in Spain and with them came these little Mustangs okay the I- Iberian Mustang is light small and sturdy it's not very tall and it's not very muscular so it's kind of like me it's only 14 <laughs> it's only 14 hands high I don't know what that means I'm, I'm pretty sure that's short all you horse people you know what I'm talking about 14 hands high and features a concave Arabian face and a tapering muzzle the horses were not impressive or imposing at all, or extremely fast, but they were smart, trainable, and could live off of dry grass that was everywhere on the prairies, okay, on the plains. Most importantly, it could survive long distances and extended periods without water. Also, it could forage for its own food, even in winter. Its, its uh, endurance was legendary, was the stuff of legend. An Iberian Mustang could run forever. You would probably collapse before it collapsed. And it was freaking carrying you. You would probably collapse. That's how strong its lungs were. That's how strong its muscles were. Although it wasn't big, it was built for that. It was built for running around in the desert and in the high plains. Okay? You didn't have to worry about finding food. You know how like modern pets are pretty much helpless without us? Horses weren't like that. The Iberian Mustang, it could find its own food. It could forage and find its own food. So even when, even during the winter when there was high snow and ice and cold winds, the horses could still survive and they could still find food. They could also survive even when it was hot with no water. So the Comanches, one of their, one of their tricks was they would raid out of nowhere. And it would always raid at night. They would raid, kill everybody, take a whole bunch of stuff, and then they would take off. Like, 
rocket out of there and just ride as hard as push their horses and ride as hard as they could for as long as they could and put to put as much distance as they could between their pursuers because they knew once they raided and once word got back either to the spanish or to the americans to the settlers they would send a, a, a force out to find them to track them down and the faster and longer that the comanches rode their horses away from the raid the better the more distance there was the more likely they were to escape so that's what they did and the iberian mustang allowed them to do that uh the uh iberian mustang flourished in mexico and it made the spanish prolific horse breeders right they were like the cream of the crop when it came to breeding horses the spanish they knew what they were doing man they might not be very good at fighting they might <laughs> they might not be very good at colonial kind of administration but they were great at breeding and breaking and grooming horses they were great at it um as the spanish slowly conquered more territory the horses spread with them and the spanish trust me they were aware of what this meant right as they conquered more territory they knew they understood that their horses would start spreading right there'll be horses here and, and a herd here and herds grazing over in the mountains and they knew that so what what did they do one of the first rules that they enacted when they conquered a territory was no indians can ride a horse not gonna happen remember in that scene i have to say this from django when samuel jackson samuel l jackson he makes a comment like what is that n-word doing on that nair is it nair or mare pretty much he was saying <laughs> i can't how am i gonna bring up a quote and i can't remember the exact quote you gotta understand guys okay my podcast and the reason why i'm stumbling and bumbling sometimes because it's all off the top of my head i have an outline that kind of gives me a, a direction to go in but i'm this is all off of knowledge most of this right just knowledge of my, my uh, extensive research so Samuel Jackson says, what is that N-word doing on that mare? Like, that's the same thing the Spanish felt like. What is that Indian doing on that horse? Like, Indians cannot ride horses, bro. That is illegal. It's illegal as F in, in uh, colonial Spain. Ultimately, though, right, even though they made all these laws that saying Indians cannot learn about horses, they cannot ride horses, they had to let them. They didn't have a choice because they needed the local Indians that they conquered and enslaved to build their cathedrals, their missions, and their forts. They needed the enslaved Indians to also take care of their ranches. And in order to take care of a Spanish ranch, you had to know to take care of horses because every Spanish mission, every Spanish ranch, and every Spanish fort had a whole crap ton of horses. And guess what? There weren't enough Spaniards to take care of all of them. So what, did, what happened? The Indians began to learn about horses and they began to pick up things from the Spanish. Little tip, little tricks here and there. They would learn how to how to break them. They would learn. They would watch the Spanish ride them. They would watch how the Spanish uh, did their breeding, and they would learn. They absorbed all this knowledge, knowledge of how to saddle and break horses. Gradually passed from the Spanish control into the hands of the locals. Right. Excuse me. We're at an hour and four, 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 four. All right, guys. If you guys are falling asleep, take a break. Let me know. Oh yeah, you can't. That's right. 
This is pretty exciting for me. I don't know about you guys. All right, so the Horse Revolution Part 2. The second part of the Horse Revolution was the dispersion of the horses. So first things first, right? Part 1, the Spanish had to bring the horses. So once they got here, right, they had to go from Spain to Mexico and then cross the border, right? So that's bringing the horses to the area. Part 2 is the dispersion. How did the horses get into the hands of the locals? How did they spread so far and so wide? How? How is that possible? All right. It happened very slowly at first, but it gained steam as time went on. The first real herd of horses was brought to the North American continent with the expedition of Don Juan de Onate to New Mexico in 1598. He brought freaking 700, my God, he brought 700 horses. So the first natives to encounter horses were the Pueblo Indians that I talked about, whom the Spanish, of course, conquered and, of course, enslaved and then, of course, converted to Catholicism in that order. The Pueblo Indians built the first Spanish missions and the first forts, so they also took care of the horses. But the Pueblo Indians didn't really care about like actual. I mean, they learned about horses and they absorbed knowledge, but they didn't care about actually using it. They had really no interest in horses other than eating them, which is, I don't know how good horse meat is, but it doesn't sound that appealing to me. Apaches love horse meat too. I don't know. That's kind of gross. Anyway, um, so guess what though? Guess what? Guess what? When the Spanish, as the Spanish decided, right, to favor the Pueblo Indians and shelter them, they really didn't shelter them. They really just conquered them and, like, enslaved them. But they did show preference to the Pueblo Indians over the other local Indian tribes. And guess who didn't like that? It wasn't the Comanches. It was the second coolest tribe. Well, I want to say that because I'm a look. Um, well, Lakotas are cool. I'm not going <laughs> to. The second coolest southwestern tribe in American history, the Apache. The Apaches saw that and they did not like that at all. They hated that because they hated the Pueblo Indians. So this brought the wrath of hell down on the Spanish from the Apaches. Okay, The fact that the Spanish would favor the Pueblos really pissed off the Apaches. Um, so what happened? The Apaches began to raid. They did their raiding, but they didn't do it from from horseback. They didn't have horses yet. But guess what they did? When they did raid, they captured and stole horses. All right. Eventually, the Apaches began to adapt themselves to the horse. And no one knows exactly how this happened, but the Apache learned very quick. They learned fast as lightning how to how to use horses. I don't know how. No one knows. No historian can put their finger on what happened. But they learned really fast. First, the Apaches stole the horses. Then they learned how to ride them. Right, which is what I just said. The Apache copied the Spanish techniques, right? They imitated everything the Spanish did with their horses. The Apaches did. The, Apache, the Apaches mounted from the right, a practice that the Spanish had stolen from the Moors. The Apache also used crude replicas of Spanish bits and bridles and saddles. Okay? The horses gave the Apache a huge advantage as hunters. It also made them great at raiding. Because instead of running away into the hills, like whooping and hollering and running, they could ride away, which was so much faster. It just, it just, it just helped them strike faster and escape faster. The Apaches conducted raids 
on New Mexico settlements as early as the 1650s. But despite I cannot man I keep despite all these advantages, the Apaches still never really adopted a horse completely. They they just could not get away from their kind of semi-agricultural lifestyle. They just couldn't do it. Any tribe that had agriculture could not could never and could not match the Apaches. They could never be a true plains tribe. A true plains tribe, they were nomads. They were strictly buffalo hunters and gatherers. That's it. They were not they did not do corn. They did not grow crops. They did not hang out along uh, around rivers other than as temporary camps. The Apaches, they had stationary villages. They they farmed corn and squash and all this other stuff. No. The Comanches did not do that. They were never a horse tribe. The Apaches were uh, the Apaches were never a horse tribe. They fought on horseback. They fought on horseback, meaning they fought from horseback, meaning they used horses as transportation to get to the battle, but they never really learned how to breed horses and didn't care to learn them. They used their Mustangs mostly for basic travel, and they freaking loved horse flesh, which is kind of gross. They loved horses. So most of the horses they did have or stole, they ate, and they saved the best ones for their raids and, and to get around. Despite their status as kind of a semi-agricultural tribe, the Apaches were still the first Native American Indians to understand what, what hunters and raiders could do with a horse, right? They were really the first ones to use horses in raids and to use horses to hunt. They hunted with the horse, they raided with the horse, meaning they rode up to the raid, got off the horse, and then did their thing, got back on the horse, and then ran away. The Comanches fought exclusively from horseback. They did not fight on foot. That is the difference between Comanches and Apaches. And that's what allowed the Comanche to nearly annihilate the Apaches. But that is much too big for the scope of this podcast, that war with the Apaches. If you guys want me to do a podcast on the war with the Apaches, let me know. DM me, message me, okay? All right, this is the last segment of this podcast because my voice is killing me. The spread of horse knowledge. In 1630, there were no tribes anywhere that were mounted. None. No tribe in America was mounted, meaning no tribe in America had horses. By 1700, all Texas Plains tribes had them. And by 1750, the tribes in freaking Canada were hunting buffalo on horseback. <laughs> That's how quickly horses spread. That's not even 100 years. Or no, that is 100 years. That's a little over 100 years. That's not even 200 years. That's a, hundred, that's a little over 100 years. 120 years from... 1630 to 1650 it went from no horses to everyone's got horses pretty much on the on the plains west of the mississippi the horses gave new mobility it allowed indians to master the buffalo they could move with the herds now they could travel they could travel faster than a buffalo at full gallop they learned how to ride the buffaloes down on open ground they stabbed them with lances between the animal's rib cage or they shot them with arrows Hunting skills became martial skills. Hunting mimicked combat. If you're a good hunter, you're usually a good fighter. Tribes that learned how to hunt on horseback gained an instant military advantage over others. 
No true plains tribe fished or practiced agriculture before the horse, and none did after. So the Plains Indian tribes, a true Plains Indian tribe did not change. They did not go from crops to not crops. They either had crops and then they didn't have crops. So what <laughs> does that make sense? Like if you didn't have it before the horse, you didn't have it after the horse because all the horse did was make what you already did that much better, which was hunt buffalo and forage. War could now be made across huge distances. Horses began to be a form of wealth and a commodity, a tradable commodity, just like people. You could trade a person just as easy as you could trade a horse. All right. Horse technology transformed the shunned, lowly, and awkward Comanche tribe into a dazzling light cavalry. They were formidable hunters and they were wealthy traders. The horse really launched this unknown tribe to legendary status, right? Their name lives on today. Sioux, Cheyenne, Kiowa, Blackfoot, Crow, and Comanche. These are names that are going to live forever. Oh, don't forget Apache, but they weren't really Plains tribes, so I'm not going to include them. Sioux, Cheyenne, Kiowa, Blackfoot, Crow, and Comanche. These are what the tribes that kind of everyone knows. Anyone who knows anything about anything about Native Americans and history of the frontier know about these tribes. They know about them and they respect them. All right. Now, this is the last part. I lied. This is the last part of the podcast. And this is it. The Comanche master the horse. No one knows when the Comanche bands in eastern Wyoming came in contact with the horse. However, despite that, the Comanches are considered to be the prototypical horse tribe. They are the standard when it comes to horses. No one could outride or outshoot them. Kiowas, which were their allies, they also fought primarily primarily from horseback. The Pawnees, the Crows, even the Dakotas, they use horses mainly for transportation only. Only in the movies did an Apache ever fight on horseback. They will never fight from horseback. They will use a horse to get to the raid, to get off, and then they raid. They don't do the raid on horseback. That is a lie. That is for Hollywood only. Comanches were also the only tribe to learn how to breed horses. This is an intensely demanding knowledge-based skill, and it helped create massive wealth for the tribe by producing huge horse. Uh, the br breeding allowed the Comanche to make gigantic herds of horses, right? They became rich as heck. Horses were currency on the frontier. It was not uncommon for a Comanche warrior to have 100 to 200 mounts each. Can you imagine having 100 cars? That's what it was like. That's how rich they were. They're like the uh, Arab uh, Arabs, uh, sheiks. You know, the oil, the oil. You know, the oil barons in uh, Saudi Arabia and Russia. That's like them. They had like 200 cars. That's what the Comanche had. All right, guys, man, I'm, I'm starting to mess up. So I'm going to stop it here. My voice is giving out. My yeah. Anyway, thank you for joining me, guys. I really appreciate y'all. I hope I'm getting better with this podcast thing. It's not as easy as it sounds. I apologize for the stumbling a little bit. You know, when you get fatigued, your voice gets fatigued, and you start getting tired, you start messing up. So we're gonna stop here. 
Next, we'll talk more in detail about how the Comanche mastered the horse and how they fought because they were freaking vicious archers and they were vicious cavalry fighters. God bless you guys. Stay safe. Remember to join us next time for the Ape Academy podcast. God bless you. Ape. Hey.